0: There's always a polarity between a male and a female. There's a father archetype. That's the masculine polarity. There's a mother archetype. In tarot, there's the emperor and the empress, which is the father and mother. And then you say, well, for 4,000 years, the majority of the world population has come into this belief that conscious or unconscious, that women are second-class citizens and that men rule everything. When you put all this together, you see the generational re-imprinting of very dangerous ideas about what a man is and what a woman is then your mom and dad were imprinted into that system so they passed the same painful traumas to you and you know as einstein said you can't solve a problem with the same thinking that created it
1: in today's busy world how can we find the inspiration knowledge and energy to live a healthy and empowered life if we balance and harmonize our mind exercise our body live according to the laws of nature, and connect to spirit, can we find a way to heal, become our authentic self, and live our purpose with love? I am your hostess, Amy Fournier, and welcome back to Awakening Aphrodite. Hey everybody, I'm here with my friend Hannah Marabani from Sieben Solus, amazing, my favorite skincare self-care, pet care, beauty company, you actually refer to having sacred ingredients. What do you mean by sacred ingredients?
0: They become sacred in a sense that we do not allow the soil to get tampered with. We allow nature take its course on the soil and allow the ingredients to bloom on their own without us tampering with any sorts of chemicals and fertilizers and pesticides. And the type of water we use, it's well water from right from the farms. And that well water is very clean. It doesn't have any toxicity from the city. So what gets absorbed into the soil is proper nutrition that we put in that comes directly from the farm, from the plants that we plant, and from the animals that we have, and the water that is pure coming from Mother Earth.
1: Please try it out. Sieb enter the special coupon code FITAMYTV10, all caps, at checkout, and you'll save 10%. I am thrilled to share with you one of my all-time favorite things that I've ever bought in my entire life, and I'm not saying this lightly, okay, not only in my professional career over 30 years in holistic health and fitness, but also my personal life that has changed my life, sauna space. Why is sauna space different? because it's not just what you think of as a sauna, like that old Finnish sauna where you sit in like that wooden box and sweat to death pouring water on rocks. This is a multitask. I actually like to call it the ultimate health and detox multitask because sauna space is different. Yes, you get the sweat therapy, which is essential, essential for detoxification, that passive sweating, but it also has the light therapy, which is a big fancy word meaning photobiomodulation, which triggers the mitochondria, your biology turns on the switches. And space has a grounding mat, so you're grounding in the earth, we don't get outside enough, getting our feet on the ground, which drains those positive ions in your body from too much technology with the negative ions of the ground. And it has an EMF shield, electromagnetic frequency shield option that you can get. And if you're in front of technology, computers, phones, TVs, smart houses, it's all technology. So, Sauna Space is the quadruple whammy. And here's the last thing I'll tell you. You don't have to buy the whole sauna, okay? Because it's, it's pricey, but again, it's worth every penny. You'll have it your whole life. You can just buy the Photon Light, which is basically one of the big red bulbs, which is gorgeous and beautiful. And I use them as night lights. I use them uh, just all the time. So, you can use my coupon code at checkout, FitAmyTV5. All this is on my website under my recommended products e-store. I'm just like, can you tell I'm jumping out of my seat here to tell you about this? Because this is truly one of my all-time favorite important game changers. Now let's get back to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Awakening Aphrodite Podcast. My name is Amy Fournier, and this show is about helping you to be healthy and fit in mind, body, and spirit, as well as harmonize your masculine and feminine energy, tap into your intuition, your true source of power, and awaken your authentic self. I am so thrilled to share with you the second time on the show, Mr. Paul Czech. He really doesn't need much of an introduction, but I'm sure you know him as the grandfather of holistic health and wellness. Yep. He's the one that pretty much started this whole term of being a health coach or even a lifestyle coach. And he was really a pioneer bringing in all the outside factors that have to do with our results from exercise. He took the whole world of personal training and just completely expanded it. Not that he had a personal training background, don't misunderstand. I'm just saying that he was one of the first to say, hey, we got to look at people's diet. We got to look at if they're getting asleep. We got to look at their relationships and their stress life and their beliefs, the mindset. This is all a very important part about helping people to be healthy and fit. Yes, Paul check was the guy. And you definitely want to check out his appearance the first time on Awakening Aphrodite, episode 100. You're going to remember that one, right? 100. We get into a lot of Paul's background and how Paul and I met our long relationship. We have been very close friends and colleagues for over three decades now. And, uh, yes, Paul and I go way, way back. We are definitely soul family. Paul was so gracious to come back on the show today. I wanted to start tapping into his brain about what's going on with this whole thing of toxic masculinity and even toxic femininity i don't know if you've heard that phrase lately but it's been kicked around a lot and i really wanted to get his perspective on that we start the discussion on the polarities the masculine and feminine essence or energy remember it's not a gender it's a way of being it's an energy and it's what comes together to create consciousness it's what comes together to create at all It's where creation begins is that melding of the two polarities. We also get into archetypes because you really can't talk about all this stuff without understanding the common themes that are pervasive among all cultures. We also talk about the three primary religions and the way that they have traditionally treated women. We talk about how patriarchy was not always the way it was. A lot of people aren't even aware of that. They didn't even know that there were societies that were led and ruled by women and they were ruled very successfully, I might add. Not that it's better. Please don't misunderstand. I love men. Nobody loves men more than me. I'm just trying to say that a lot of times we don't have a proper awareness and education of a lot of the history of humanity that is very significant and would really help us understand how we can create more harmony now in this day and age. So we get into the polarities, the function of archetypes, the imago day and what that is, why you need to know. We talk about s- projecting and subconscious wounds and how we can project our subconscious wounds on others, how we attract people to us that can unconsciously trigger our wounds. And Paul explains the famous Pottinger's Cat Study, which is extremely important for us to understand the ramifications of what's going on today with all these children maturing sexually so quickly and all the gender and sexual confusion going on. Pottinger's Cat Study is a critical one to understand. Paul explains what's known as the Rule of Thirds why it's important to breathe properly. We talk about consciousness and three will. And Paul talks about the importance of having a dream. He always has taught that in all of his teachings. If we don't have something like a lighthouse to focus on, even if you're thinking, well, it's a little far off, I'm not sure how in the heck this is going to happen, but this would be amazing. My dream would be this. Like I know for me, my dream is to have a house, a property where I live and work and run my retreats and offer the land to people to help them heal and to breathe, connect with other like-minded people, learn some healing lifestyle practices and modalities that they can then take home, take back to their families and their communities and we can all have a ripple effect into the world with a contribution. That's been my dream. I'll just throw out there, okay? I'm working on having that happen. Trust me, there's many days where I think it's nuts, it's never going to happen, and then some days I feel a little more hopeful and optimistic. So So that's all part of the course. But Paul also explains the three qualities of the soul and the power of choice. Ultimately, my friends, we have the power of choice. And you always have to remember that you can choose a better thought. You can choose a better belief. You can choose what you listen to. You can choose what you spend your attention on and you pay attention to. You can choose what you don't. And don't include in your life. You can choose your boundaries. You can choose your friends. You can't choose your family, but you can choose how much time you spend with them, how much you buy into what they say, how much you let them control your energy, and how you react. Okay. So the power of choice, that's a critical, critical teaching from Paul at the end of the show. So you're going to want to stay tuned to that. Hey, so before we get into the show, I wanted to share with you one of my favorite products, which is the brand new modern Alm jewelry and products. I've added it to my website e-store. Did you know I have a website e-store? Yep. I've been in this industry for over 30 years and I've compiled a bunch of stuff that I love. I use every day and I've worked out ways for you guys to get a discount and save some money. It's a win-win-win for all of us. So you can check out all my favorite products with the discount codes there. And the latest one I just wanted to point out before we join Paul is Modern Alm. I have one of their necklaces on right now if you're watching on YouTube. Actually, I have two of their necklaces. I have the shungite and this other gorgeous beaded crystal necklace, and they have amazing properties of healing, detoxification, energizing, helping your body control stress. And they're just gorgeous. So you can check that out and save some money there. Okay, let's now join Mr. Paul Check Enjoy. Welcome back to Awakening Aphrodite, everybody. I'm so thrilled to have my friend, my mentor, part of my soul family back on the show for the 200th anniversary episode. Welcome back to Awakening Aphrodite, Paul Check.
0: Thank you, thank you. 200, wow, pretty impressive.
1: 200, it feels seriously like a week ago when you were on the 100th
0: episode. It does to me too.
1: Right, amazing times. So here we are, Paul, with so much to chat about. I want to get a little deeper into the mind and experience of Paul Check today. And- <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> yep. We're going to go in deep where I-, I got all my tools ready because I'd love to get into your perspective on what's going on with masculinity, both in the world at large, the collective, as well as for us individually as men and as women. because. There's a lot of shifts going on in the world. A lot of people call it the Great Awakening, and uh, I feel like it is. And I'd love to kind of get your perspective on what you think is going on and how we can navigate it successfully.
0: Well, you know, it's a it's a very deep topic with a lot of facets to it. I, I think oftentimes when I hear people talking about it, they're kind of only looking at one aspect of it you know it reminds me of something that uh, i read by a zen master talking about enlightenment he said most people think that enlightened people all see the same things but he said if you put 12 enlightened people in a circle around a multicolored bouquet of flowers and asked each of them what they see they'll all tell you something different but they're all telling you the truth none of them can see what's on the other side of the table though so i think when it comes to issues of masculinity and femininity and all the stuff that's connected to it with the transgender movement and the you know destruct, destruction of the polarities which happen to be the polarities that create consciousness um and and then that ties into you know the World Economic Forum and the kind of global agenda, which, you know, all you got to do is look at who's behind it to see already the pathology exists at the top. So um that's your first tip. But uh, I think we have to go back to core principles. The when we talk about archetypes, Jung spoke of the what's called the objective psyche. The objective psyche really is created of the archetypes that showed up repeatedly around the world long before people could have ever communicated with each other in their myths and in their fairy tales. So Jung analyzed myths and fairy tales from around the world, as you know, and he saw the same patterns and the same themes reoccurred. And that the stories, even though the words might have been different, were all talking about the exact same things. So, for example, the three things that almost all myths talk about in one way, uh, shape, or another is the process of birth, the process of life, and the challenges of going from childhood to adulthood to old age to senility, and, and, and then the, the issue of death. So those are common themes for all of us. We all have mothers, we all have fathers, and we all begin life as a child. We all know that there's a leader, a chief, a a, a king, or an emperor. We all know what a warrior is and the importance of a warrior. We all know what magic is, the archetype of the magician, so without listing, you know, the many, many of them, the tarot archetypes are really the ones that are the most commonly active in the human psyche. That's why tarot, you know, never stop selling well, no matter what religious people have to say about it. They say nasty things about it. But if you look in their purse, you'll often find a tarot deck because there's something drawing people that's beyond their rational mind, and that is the objective psyche. So then Marie-Louise von Franz, who was Jung's assistant for many years and an expert at ancient languages and decoded alchemical texts and many other things, uh, studied fairy tales from around the world. And she's probably now written, I think, at least seven volumes on, on you know what fairy tales are and decoding them. And they saw the same thing, the same patterns within the fairy tales all over the world. So the conclusion was which has also been brought to the light more recently by an archeologist named Genevieve von Petzinger. And what I show in Spirit Jim is that she went in for many years studying cave paintings and stone carvings and and stone art. And she found artifacts, you know, jewelry, uh, pots, Vases, uh, figurines, all the way back, dated as far back as 86,000 years of age. And she accumulated sort of an archive of all these things, and at some point realized that the same symbols, for example, symbols for water, or symbols for fire, or for food, or for air, or for earth, or for home showed up all over the world as far back as 86,000 years ago, and she identified 32 symbols that were ubiquitous across cultures and continents and time spans um, before we really had a comprehensive written language. And so, you know, depending on what people think the age of Sanskrit is, it's it's certainly not 86,000 years old or even 25,000 years old. And so once again, she saw that there was something common that was affecting the minds of human beings and that they intuitively created symbols that represented certain things that all the other people did as well. So what Jung then did was identified that there is psychic elements, archetypes, they're objective because they're common to everybody. There's nobody that's on this planet that did not have a mother, unless they were born in a test tube, which would be a very recent thing. So maybe we have a, a new archetype coming, which can happen. And so when we understand the concept of the objective psyche and archetypes, then we have to go to Jung's observation that the Imago Dei archetype, which is our image of deity, is the primary archetype which Jung said all archetypes emerge from just like God is the source of all things. If you understand God, God means that for which there is no other. Um, this is not a Christian God versus a Muslim God versus a Jewish God, etc. In my system of explaining things that God capital G little O little D is just the highest power of any belief system, because you can see, for example, we have three Abrahamic religions that all claim to be monotheistic. The word mono means one, yet we have three radically different conceptions of God's qualities, expectations, wants, desires, rules, demands, commands, and punishments. So there you you see exactly what Jung's talking about. He's saying that all the archetypes emerge from the Imago Dei. He says, it's impossible to determine, to determine if your Imago Dei creates you, or you create it. So there's always a mystery when you're dealing with God. And the point that Jung's making is, is that we all are programmed with ideas about what God is or isn't from the beginning. Even an atheist is, is, is rejecting the idea of God. And Jung said for something to be rejected, it must first be real. So there you see an atheist's highest power becomes either the universe or matter or something it can weigh and measure. Therefore, it projects its God into its world, right? So how an atheist sees the world is unique to the atheist perspective, which is going to be different than a Christian, a Muslim, a Jew, uh, or a Jewish person, or a Taoist, or someone practicing Shinto or Baha'i, etc. And so... The point he's making, does it create you or do you create it? Well, if it creates you, then it means that God wants to express itself and experience itself in what could only be described as an infinite variety of ways, but that there is common themes to the story. In other words, archetypes, right? So all stories have a protagonist and antagonist. There's always stars. There's always a cast and a crew. There's always some kind of script. There's always some kind of message. There's always a plot. And so, how this relates to the the issues of the sexes is is for the last approximately four thousand years, our prim- primary religions, our dominant religions, are patriarchal. They're masculine dominant. In fact, Christian, as you know, the Holy Trinity of the Christian Church has no feminine element in it whatsoever. And when we look at Christianity as a religion, uh, as you know, there's the great book, When God Was a Woman by Merlin Stone, who gives a shocking history of the religious beliefs about women and the treatment of women. And, and you know, the I mean, anybody that read that, I've often said, I don't know how any woman could become a Christian if she understood what she was signing up for because it's just absolutely shocking i mean women were worse than second class citizens uh and they were treated like mules and and abused and beaten and you know the 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 long story i could go off for hours on it
1: well they were property
0: they were property Mm -hmm. and and um you know we could go into all sorts of stuff but the key point that i'm trying to make is that if you add up the number of people in the world that were born into and programmed into, programmed into, in other words, their Imago Dei imprint is the God of a patriarchal religion. All the three main monotheistic religions are very negative towards women. Um, You know, uh, look at how, look at the Quran and, and how they treat women. And, and even all you got to do is look at the conversations between, I think it was, gabriel if i remember right that was was telling muhammad to recite uh but it was the angel that was telling him in the cave to recite which was what became the quran of course according to the myth and the the things that so-called an angel told him about women were highly patriarchal very masculine dominant which to me immediately says that's not an angel speaking that's imagination or whatever it might be. I I don't know, but it's certainly not God because God is mutually both sexes. God is not male nor female. And to refer to God as a man is also a, a, a disaster because I've never seen a man give birth to anything but a bowel movement in my entire life. That's so, what I
1: always say. Well, at least the first half of it. yeah yeah you know it's it's always the female that gives birth or creates it just so it kind of is nonsensical to be thinking but but please go ahead yeah
0: well you're right it is nonsensical and (laughs) and 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 so look if you look at what's going on in the world with all this sex identity crisis toxic masculinity toxic femininity uh taking giving children the rights to choose their sex when they're children um, well this is completely nonsensical right so you can see we've we've been worshiping god in a nonsensical way for 4000 years and as we've been doing it the health and well-being of human beings has been in a progressive decline where the sickest unhealthiest physically emotionally mentally and, and and spiritually in many ways than we've ever been now there's pockets of people that are spiritually growing and there's pockets of people that are healthy But on the whole, all you got to do is look at the statistics. The statistics on every level are just absolutely mind-bogglingly shocking. Mm -hmm. I, I remember when I was putting together my How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy book, and I was doing the research and the writing in 2000. It was published in 2004, so it took three years to write it. And at that time, I found statistics saying that at that time, one in two people in united states would die from cancer or, or at least get cancer one mm-hmm. in two people will get cancer i can't remember it might have been die from cancer mm-hmm. well now it's far worse than that and the rate of cancer is skyrocketing is you know and and you know that has a lot to do with the medical systems interventions yeah. of late but the point i'm driving at is is the first thing to really understand this is one you got to understand we have an objective psyche that interacts with archetypes there's always a polarity between a male and a female. There, there's, a, there's a distinction. Like there's there's a, a father archetype. That's the masculine polarity. There's a mother archetype. Or in, in tarot, there's the emperor and the empress, which is the father and mother. And then you say, well, for 4,000 years, the majority of the world population has come into this belief that conscious or unconscious, that women are second class citizens and all the things we've been talking about, and that men rule everything. And uh then we 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 see how that led to tremendous amounts of sexual abuse of women, which still goes on to this very day, and it's it, it's not only as bad, it's worse than ever as all the unveiling of Hollywood and government and sex trafficking rings and sex pornography and pornography and all the stuff in the Catholic Church and and probably many others. So The first point that I'm trying to make is when we look at how the psyche of a human being works, the archetypes are the functions that make meaning. Without an archetype, you can't make meaning. So just like you have to have letters on a keyboard to type a sentence or a letter or write a book, you can't make meaning without them. You can't just look at a piece of paper and imagine what you want people to understand. You have to have a symbol that has meaning attached to it. If we see the symbol C, a t together we automatically know that whoever that is is talking about a little animal that we know of as a cat and so it's meaning making and god is you know by definition a myth is a story that tells itself and source would be the ultimate myth maker that tells the story of life now what's obvious to anybody paying attention is that God as that for which there is no other prime source must by definition be investing itself in both sides of every story, agonist, antagonist, good guy, bad guy, good and evil, light and dark, without which God cannot become conscious of what it is. Why is that important? Because God by definition is unconditional love. And when you're in a state of unconditional anything, there's nothing you can know because to know anything creates a condition. So the key point is God is the myth maker that invests itself in both sides of every story, but leaves choice completely up to human beings in this world. So you can choose to be on either side. So step number one is we have to realize that 85% of the world population claims religious affiliation. Most of them by far come from patriarchal dominant religions that have a toxic masculine domineering relationship, not only with women, but with men. From the very top, you know, you will burn your son as an offering. Uh, You will will go kill people that have a different belief system. Nobody can do that without a, a deep wound inside their heart and soul. So we see the toxic expression of masculinity starting all the way at the very top. Because whenever you put men in a position to dominate women and to dominate life and to be abusive to it, To the degree they don't know what they're doing, they're being wounded, right? A a child may not know what it's doing when it's playing with a loaded gun, but it can kill itself. So that's step one. We've got a disease in our religious systems that are the dominant method of programming the mind of human beings and have been used to control people for thousands of years and even much longer than the Abrahamic religions have been around. Uh, you can see this with studying the the history of Egypt. You can see it in the um, Sumerian tablets. Uh, th- this is just as old as they're, the, as, as long as we've been writing, we've been dealing with these problems. Okay, so next.
1: And, and the thing that, I'll just jump in, the thing that gets yeah. me though, Paul, is that people don't realize it hasn't always been that way, however. You know, yes, no. it's been, you know, like... The, the time with the, the the matriarchal societies and those religions and cultures and that there was more equity and some of them were were not patriarchal at all. It was the feminine that was the the Godhead. So my only point is that we, we aren't even aware that it was ever any other way. And it was. Right.
0: You know? It was. So
1: just, just to be aware of that, like it's kind of like a given in this day and age that this is the way it is, but it hasn't always been that way.
0: No, and, and that's one of the problems we have, which is in another part of it, is that the religious system of education permeated its way through the plantation owners into the slaves. And what was supposed to be an education system actually it turns out to be an indoctrination system. And as Ken Wilber shows in his teachings, that the modern education we system we have today was invented by plantation owners for the specific purpose of keeping slaves the children very very busy for as long as they could during the day so they could get more hours of work out of the parents and also to program the kids to not think for themselves to follow orders and not be creative because they didn't want you know especially during the beginning of the industrial revolution where assembly lines were there factories they didn't yeah. want people changing the outcome because it screws up the flow of mass production so the whole system was developed to not teach people how to think but to teach them what to think and to punish them just as religion did for making mistakes or breaking the rules so we're coming into this but the, the to step back to your point when you look I mean, anybody that spends time with women, uh, we all spent some time with our mother, but women, to use Mark Gaffney's term, they're more of a circle. So the, think of a circle to symbolize the woman. Think of a line or an arrow to symbolize a man. If you, if I, for example, go to my wife, Angie, who's a nutritionist, and say, I've got a patient that's got... Um, you know, Epstein Bar syndrome, what supplements should I use? If she doesn't know the answer, she's very likely to text someone or call somebody that she knows has experience with that challenge and ask them for advice. And she may even try multiple people to get a consensus. But if you ask most men what to do, they will usually just write down whatever they know or just simply say, I don't know, and leave it at that. The point is, women are networkers. Women have always worked together. They've gathered together. They've raised children together. They've educated children together. They've educated each other. They taught each other all the necessary crafts that were necessary for clothes making and animal care, etc., where men are typically uh, much more likely to try to do things alone and not to network so much. So why I'm bringing that point up is because during the matriarchal period, the previous period, you may have had a woman chief or a woman ruler, but she was much, much more likely to not direct from her own, shall we say, mono perspective and to go into using her advisors and say, okay, this is the challenge we're having. What do you think we should do? Go to the medicine, man. What do you think we should do? Go to the shaman. What do you think we should do? Go to the uh, next person that has advice that might be of use. And then from there, she would make an opinion. But today, you know, Donald Trump is a, a much more living example of the way most men behave. They have an idea. They seldom listen to anybody else. They do it if the bottom falls out they blame it on somebody else. Now I'm being stereotypical because I have to be, because I'm speaking of the the kind of the general stroke of men. So women tend to network, men tend to be isolated and value their own opinion so highly that they're far less likely to get direction and support to make a, a sound decision from other people. So the, the, to conclude my point, When we were in matriarchal times, women were much more savvy, and they were also much more sensitive to people's emotions. They were more empathetic and compassionate. And there was very few wars from my studies during the matriarchal period. There was very few wars. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find too many wars on record during that period. But, but, But during the time men have been running things, we've been just killing everything nonstop, including the planet. So we've laid the foundation, and what I've said, to recap for the listeners, I said is that the Imago Dei archetype is the archetype from which all archetypes emerge, and when we have beliefs about God, our highest power, which within that belief system, then every archetype that we have is tainted by our beliefs in God, because that which is unconditional is like a polished mirror it does not have any bias or opinion about what it reflects. The mirror never rejects anybody for race, color, creed, sex, body shape, body size, uh, financial status. It's just never going to happen. So once you then imprint the Imago Dei, that has a tremendous influence on how children are parented. All you got to do is study the amount of, trauma in Catholic families, talk to trauma therapists, and you'll see, I'm a guy that's been doing therapy with patients for 40 years. By far, the most traumatized people I've worked with as a group are the Catholic people. So what you see is when you go past the Imago Day, you immediately imprint the father and the mother, which imprints the child, and the child of today becomes the warrior and the workforce and the preacher, and the teacher of tomorrow. So as we've seen the downward trickle of this brainwashing, which goes right back to the Christians, they have a saying, Christian preachers have a saying, you give me a child and I'll give you back a preacher, which means if you give me a child while their mind is wide open and I can brainwash them, you'll have a preacher for life. Don't give me an adult because I have to work through their other ideas. That's too much work. Give me a child and it's downhill from there and so we've now got so many you know every generation alive on this planet has come through this brainwashing system and has their own biases most of which are unconscious unfortunately which means they act it out but they don't aren't consciously aware that they're doing it like many men act toward women the way they do unconsciously they think well that's just normal. My dad did that. Or they might think I'm even better than my dad. My dad beat the hell out of my wife and I just criticize her a lot or control her. But um, so now you've got this long line of ideological fixation and heavy, heavy polarity between the women. You've also got a long line of women that have been traumatized by men. So what we see now being called toxic masculinity is really, I would call, the unconscious projection of the wound to the woman that's gone through the lines of generation. And as Mark Woolin shows, and uh, when I interviewed Mark Woolin, he, he at that time in his book said that the, the um, generational trauma would go three generations, but cited research that had documented it. It uh-huh. goes 14. Oh. I've also seen current research papers saying it goes as much as 21 generations. So that's that's a long line. Now, if you've got even 14 generations, then, then basically the first generation is going to imprint 14 generations. That means it's going to take hundreds of generations to get that trauma out because generation one is still in generation 14, but generation two is in generation 15, generation three, 16. So you see what I'm showing when you've got trauma, it just keeps recapitulating itself. And it
1: takes
0: a, it's yes, yeah, it takes a long, long time to mm. bleed that out of the system. And so I think, you know, as Jung said, if you don't meet your unconscious on the inside, it will meet you on the outside in the events of your life and you will call it fate. So I think what's happening is women are under a lot of stress, just like men are, because the events in the world in the last several years. And so what's happening is they're projecting their wounds out onto the men in front of them. So you see men be, being perceived as toxic toxic, and labeled as toxic men or toxic masculinity. But what they don't realize is that is probably their wounds with their father or their wounds with their uh, male school teachers or their wounds with other men in their life or the wounds with boyfriends and ex-husbands that abuse them but until you're conscious of your own programming and your own pain you don't know you're doing it right and this is well demonstrated in in um, attachment theory and it's also talked about by people like Diane Poole Heller who for example says you know, right, At last statistic I saw, the average marriage today only lasts 2.5 years, and the average person is married three times in their lifetime. And so when I interviewed Diane Poole-Heller, she said the the average person's um, projection mechanism starts to break down at about 18 months or a year and a half into a, a marriage. And what Jung and Joseph Campbell and many others have always said, which is very true, we don't actually see, like if I was a single man and you were a single woman, as beautiful as you are and as different as my mother as you look, I wouldn't see Amy. I would be projecting my ideas of a woman and my experience of a woman and my desires for a woman based on my archetypal imprint of my mother, okay? So for the first 18 months, I'm actually, I'm never actually seeing the beautiful Amy in front of me I'm seeing at an unconscious level, my mother and anything that irritated me about my mother is likely to trigger me. But because the drunkenness of love is so strong, we overlook our actual deeper feelings and the warning systems that should have made us think, well, maybe I'm not really ideal for this person. Maybe we have good sex, but we don't get along the other 23 hours a day. But the drunkenness of love draws us into this attraction which actually turns out to be functional because we attract people to us that carry the triggers to activate our wounds, which causes the pain teacher to show up without which we would continue to go from generation to generation without ever healing. In other words, if you never triggered anything in me and my wife that goes back to wounds from mommy, I wouldn't be unconscious that I had those wounds from mommy and and I would continue to have problems with women for the rest of my life. So when my metaphorical wife, Amy starts triggering me and getting upset at me because I leave my underwear laying around immediately, the little boy in me, hears mommy yelling at him. And instead of seeing Amy, his wife, who's supposed to be my partner that I share a relationship with and she doesn't like the house dirty. And that's part of our agreement. We clean up after each other. So we don't live in a pig pen. Instead of seeing Amy that I have an agreement with, I see my mother and I react to her just like I react to my mother. And so, and I also get mad at her. Like I used to get mad at my mother and I could be swearing at her or kicking doors or punching walls or whatever it is. But what Diane Poole Heller showed was after 18 months, the projection mechanism Breaks down. So now you actually come face to face with the person that you're actually with. The question is, can the relationship survive all the damage that was done in the first 18 months? Okay. Point being is, you all the things that were there warning you, you were overlooking because of the love drunkenness. But after about 18 months, now you're not going to put up with the the uh, micromanaging of the underwear on the floor and all the other things. You're going to start fighting back. And that usually lasts about a year. And at the 2.5 year mark, most marriages break apart. Okay. So this is bilateral. So a woman projects her father imago onto men in general, but and her partner. And so you you have a, a pair of people that are projecting mommy and daddy at each other. And now if you take everything I just said about the projection of mommy and daddy and then add to it that we've been programmed with all these ideologies from religion and about the imbalance of of equality between the sexes and about domineering and control by men which then gives men permission to do things like rape abuse pillage control um manipulate and then you have a lot of traumatized women from generation to generation to generation who are being the mothers of traumatized, uh, of of children that are then getting traumatized. So the snowball starts to just get bigger and bigger and bigger is what, what I'm describing. Okay. Now there's a third factor. And uh, I know you know about this, but for your listeners, if they haven't read the book, which isn't a big book, but it's a very powerful read, it's called Pottinger's Cats by Francis Marion Pottinger.
1: A classic, a must read particularly for anybody who's interested in a healthy
0: diet. (laughs) Yeah. Now, why it's important. Pottinger took 900 cats. He did a study for 10 years. He broke them into groups. Basically, approximately half the cats ate raw food and raw milk, just as what their natural diet was. And then the other group, they ate cooked food, and pasteurized milk. There was no difference other than pasteurizing the milk and cooking the food. And then there was, I think, four different grades of pasteurization all the way up to sweet and condensed, like canned milk. So just milk pasteurized, then various densities of concentration all the way up to the most preserved, like the stuff that'll last on a shelf in a bomb shelter for 20 years kind of thing. And what he showed is that each generation that the cats reproduced, the cats eating their raw milk and natural raw food diet had no degenerative changes amongst them. Their genetics stayed high quality, their athletic ability, their catness remained intact. In other words, it didn't matter. You could keep reproducing them and and you would still have a healthy functional cat. By the second generation on processed food eating cats, He started to see um, emotional problems and fighting. And he saw increased rates of abortion and progressive decline in mental abilities. And by the third generation, there was so much um, miscarriage and abortion because the cats were so unhealthy. But he also started to see a breakdown in not only athletic ability. For example, normally you can throw a cat up in the air, even spin it, and it'll always land on its feet. But by the third generation, when he threw cats in the air, they would land on their heads. They didn't know where they were at in space. But most importantly, he found that by the third generations, the boys started having sex with boys and the girls also lost sexual differentiation. So he showed that the process of the breakdown of the internal systems of the cat, the health and vitality, its glands, its organs, its internal systems due to not having the nutrients available to heal itself and regenerate itself. And the damage that would do to the DNA that we know now, now know is true from DNA research that he didn't have back in the Mm forties. So he showed that as, cats got more and more malnourished. One of the effects was not only cognitive, not only athletic, not only re- uh, reproductive, but it was that they, they could no longer differentiate, differentiate sex. Okay. So here we are <clears throat> Processed food manufacturing got hot and heavy. It started, you know, right around the time of the first world war. There was, there was, it was going on then, but by the end of the second world war, there was, you know, massive food production, Um, Weston A. Price in the book Nutrition and Physical Degeneration shows, as you know, shocking pictures of native tribes that had interacted with trappers largely that were carrying white flour, white sugar, and um, they would be trading with these people. And he showed that in one generation, the dentition of the offspring was so damaged their teeth were no longer normally shaped their facial structure uh there's what's called the rule of thirds Mm -hmm. so if you put your thumb up against your index finger almost like a gun but with the hammer down so your thumbs right along your index finger and your mouth your teeth are together that should be the exact distance So you hook your thumb under your chin the bottom of your index finger should perfectly fit to the bottom of your nose Then you put your thumb under your nose, that should go right from the bottom of your nose to the bridge between your eyes where your eyeglasses would sit. And then you put that thumb right in the bridge between your eyes and nose, and that should go right to your hairline, which would be the length of your forehead. So what Pottinger showed in looking at human beings, largely children at the time, was that if children had one or more malnourished parents, their craniofacial, that's called the rule of thirds, broke down, and they often had a narrow maxillary arch, upper teeth, and narrow nasal passages, causing them to be unable to get enough air through their nose to ventilate their body, which led to forward head posture, open mouth breathing, mouth breathing, which overexcites excites the sympathetic system, because the only time we would breathe through our nose is if we were running, fighting, or working hard, In in our natural environment, people didn't run around.
1: You mean mouth? Sorry,
0: the only time we would breathe through our mouth, yes, sorry, Mm -hmm. uh, is when we were running, fighting, or working so physically hard. Like if you were sprinting as fast as you could, you'd probably have to start breathing through your mouth. Although many experts that have looked into that said prior prior to the breakdown of the human structure, we would have been able to get enough air through our nose, even in full sprinting. So there is some experts that say no, we wouldn't have had to breathe through our mouth. Why that's important is because the nose has turbinates in it, it has a mucous membrane in it. It's got hairs in it that are soaked in mucus. It filter the air. It filters, but the mm-hmm. turbinates spin the air oh. so that there's more surface area. And spinning the air has a charging effect on the air. And inside the nasal passages are parasympathetic nerve endings. So when you breathe through your nose, you're actually stimulating parasympathetic nerve endings that keep the right brain active and keep the body calm. Wow. So if, if, as soon as you end up with any kind of craniofacial growth and development disorder, like I've had many pro athletes, for example, when I check their oral airway size, mm-hmm. the the test I developed is if you take your index finger and thumb and put it together and make a circle and you go, oh, when I look in your throat, I should see a hole about that size, not my oh. hands, but your hands. Okay. I've had professional athletes whose oral airways half the size of their own finger based on that test I developed. So that's compromised. So it's very compromised. So what you see is those athletes cannot be in elite level aerobic activities because they cannot ventilate their bodies. And the have- more they try, the more sympathetic dominant they become. So the more fight or flight reaction, which pushes you left brain, which causes you to activate autonomic behaviors fight or flight, autonomic behaviors.
1: Like the reptilian brain.
0: Reptilian brain. Survival. Survival behaviors, Mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. So what do we do? Whenever we're under stress, we drop out of cognitive prefrontal cortex, problem-solving creative thinking. Our left brain turns on and we go into survival mode and we act out our unconscious programming. The oldest is going to be the most active because it's been active for the longest time. So it's the most facilitated, which means... The law of facilitation says when an impulse passes once through a given set of neurons to the exclusion of others, it tends to do so in a future occasion, and each time it traverses this path, the resistance will be smaller. So the way your parents treated you in the first year of your life, how you relate to mom and dad, if your dad was abusive and scary then you've got this imprint that men are abusive and scary and you got to be real careful with them. And for a woman, that could mean I get nervous whenever I'm around men. I don't know why, but it happens. So that idea, that belief, that program, by the time a woman's 30 years of age has been running for 30 years. So someone comes along in high school and says, oh, men and women are all created equal. You don't have to think that way. Don't believe that. But yeah, but you got 12 years of unconscious programming going completely against what the cognitive neocortical brain is taking in as merely as information. And Bruce Lipton says the unconscious mind is 1 million times more powerful in its processing of of information than the conscious mind. So you've basically got an unconscious mind that's a million times more powerful than your conscious mind. So no matter what what someone tells you about what's fair with men or women or what should or shouldn't be done in a relationship or you know what is healthy or unhealthy expressions of masculine and feminine you've not only got the religious programming and the social programming and the industrialization of the educational system which is a a trickle on of the same system but you've also got And all the trauma you've got from thousands of years of existing in that system where men are being traumatized by acting out what they're told is ethical and moral, even though it's not in many cases toward women, which is then upsetting the women. And so the men are getting traumatized by acting out this belief and the women are getting traumatized because they're on the butt end of this thing. And then you add into it, the degeneration of the food supply And you look, I mean, look, they they do studies on mice to make decisions about vaccinations and all sorts of important things and cats. And and the the reason they use mice and cats and monkeys is because their autonomic nervous system, their cellular system, their receptors, their hormones are so close to human beings that almost anything that you find in a research study on a drug or a disease, that whatever it does to an animal almost always does exactly that to human beings. And there's many, many, I mean, this is why this goes on. The reason they use uh, mice and rats is if I remember right, a mouse's metabolism.
1: Yeah, the age span.
0: Yeah. So a mouse's metabolism is about 400 times faster than a human being. And a rat's is, I think, 279 times faster. So two years of a rat's life yeah. is about the same as something like 55 human years. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so in two years, you can get the same as doing a 55-year study on a human being. Um, cats, I think it's something like seven times. So uh, one year of a cat's life is like seven years of a human's life, something along those lines. Yeah,
1: it sounds right. <laughs> okay. Okay
0: so the the point is is that a lot of people would say oh it's research on cats it doesn't count they're not human no it does count because if you study the anatomy and the physiology uh the the things that really matter the most they have levers we have levers they have kidneys mm-hmm. we have kidneys mm-hmm. they need water we need water they need food we need food they need sunshine we need sunshine they need an outdoor outdoor environment we need an outdoor environment and the list is long right or or we would have been researching humans instead of animals, or we would have never known anything. And we, and, and of course, wartime was a period of using humans for research. Anyone that studies that knows that's a fact. Um, just study Hitler and how he used prisoners to do research on, and they would do it into this very day in our own prison systems. Well, Makes
1: it's sense. also it's also going on not in the prison system. So well, it's study- going
0: on in the public.
1: <laughs> studying what's happening. Well, the
0: military has been doing research in the public for for they've been caught, they've been sued. They they did research in San Francisco where they sprayed some kind of an airborne. I don't remember if it was a a virus or whatever it was, but it was meant specifically to attack colored people, mm. black people.
1: Well they've done that with vaccinations too. They've done it with people. vaccinations. Yep. It's, mm-hmm.
0: it's doing going on right now. Mm-hmm. But the point is, is that none of these things are ab- ab- above the government. None of these things are ab- above the military. I mean, this and, and and they spend your taxpayers dollars doing research on how to you know keep you under complete control. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now let's put these things together. We've got whatever you believe about God becomes the way you see the world and you see other people and the way you relate to them. whatever you believe about god becomes the dictates of your religion which then becomes the dictates that your parents are programmed into you because you have to parent your child this way this is where the idea spare the rod and spoil the child comes right out of christianity right so then you have do whatever you want with women and children and you just look at the christian crusades the muslim crusades and they would not only killed the opposing religious people but they would rape the children and the mothers and the women and so we've got this long long history of mental emotional abuse physical abuse and sexual abuse all of which is trauma that's trapped in our gene lines that keeps recapitulating itself then we've got parents parenting in the model of religion that they're programmed into that is also the teachers because they're the children of parents that have that. And we've got religious schools, Catholic schools, Christian schools, you know, J- Jewish schools, Muslim schools, where, where the whole mindset is imprinted right into the school system. I went to a Seventh-day Adventist private school when I was young, because I got kicked out of all the public schools, mostly for asking questions that the teachers couldn't answer. And so then you say, okay, now let's look at the food factor and let's look at the research says, and Pottinger showed us and Weston A. Price showed us that within one generation of eating processed food, you had major changes to the dental and craniofacial structures, and one of the side effects of that is the middle third tends to shorten, which disrupts your ability to respirate properly through your nose, which throws your autonomic nervous system out of balance, which means you're always in a fight or flight state most of the time which means that you're being pushed to your left brain, which blocks your creativity, your ability to rise above, look inside, witness yourself as a detached observer, because you're caught in a survival reflex that's programmed into you. And you don't even realize you're doing it. This is why Zig Ziglar says, always be careful of ready, fire, aim behavior. (laughs) Right. And so then you now say, okay, let's just say the second world war ended in 1945. Here we are uh 2023 what's that 80 years ago 1945 plus approximately approximately 80 years <laughs> ago enough. Yep. so call that four generations right if if mm-hmm. most people have kids around 20 years of age we've had four cycles of heavy processed food eating when really it goes further back than that it goes back yeah. to the first world war so 1913 1918 or something like that so we've got four generations but pro- uh, Francis Marion Ponger showed that these degenerative changes were happening very strongly in the second generation. By yep. the third generation, the cats could not reproduce and they went extinct in the fourth generation. And then when he took the cats from the third generation and put them back on a raw food diet and raw milk diet, it took four generations to get them back to the same health that they started with. Wow. Okay. So that means if we stop right this minute, clean it all up, Just for the food alone, it's going to take another 80 years to get healthy people. And the health of your mind is no better than the health of your brain because your brain's part of your body. So a sick body is a sick brain, sick blood, sick brain. Your brain is the interface with your mind and your soul. So if you've got a distorted brain, you're going to have an inability to authentically download or interface with your own mind Therefore, your emotions, your, and your emotions are, are largely produced by your glands and organs. So someone who has poor health and poor physiology is almost impossible to have healthy emotional stability because how could that be? Hormones are produced by glands. Someone with adrenal burnout is going to have a hormonal deficit. You've got three primary hormones, insulin, adrenaline, and cortisol, without which you'll die. All of those are, the rest of them are all secondary hormones that only enhance the quality of life, but are not primary. And adrenaline is the precursor to cortisol. And if you have poor diet and you're eating too much carbohydrate and sweet stuff, then your insulin levels are always shooting through the roof. Then you go into gluconeogenesis because your body's trying to get all the blood sugar out of your body. And so then you're starving to death and you have to start breaking muscle tissue down. So it creates a huge roller coaster that attacks the pancreas and burns it out. So you can see that what I'm showing you is that as the food crisis, the feeding crisis, and there's another one I'll throw in there in a second. As the feeding crisis has caused progressive degeneration of the physical aspects of ourself, our capacity to breathe, which is a capacity for normal left brain, right brain, left brain, right brain balance. The more unhealthy the body is, the more stressed it is. And therefore, the more it reacts by activating its survival programming. Automatic. And so you go right back to religious programming all the way back to early childhood. And what did you see when COVID kicked in? All these yogis that were all holistic and all the gurus and all the teachers and even people that seem really super smart and intelligent like Jordan Peterson and Deepak Chopra, who definitely should have known better. And the Dalai Lama, for God's sakes, getting vaccinated. Yet here's Deepak Chopra, a trained scientist. And medical doctor. And one who teaches health and spirituality, who could not get any more far from the obviousness of the fact that this was bogus science, et cetera, et cetera. But what do you see when there's enough stress and fear? You do not think at the level of your conscious capability because thinking takes too long, right? When you're running from a lion, it's a really bad time to throw in a cartwheel just to be cool. That would be too much creativity in a survival situation. You'll be climbing up a tree and get up that tree before you even know you did it. In fact, you'll be celebrating that you're alive before you realized how you got up the tree. Why? Because your, your unconscious system does not have to go up into the higher brain circuits. It's activating at the brain stem level and the spinal cord level. And I can prove it to you. If you cut a chicken's head off with an ax and let it go, it'll run across the yard, but it's got no head. Why? Because the programming for how to walk is in the spinal cord itself. So you don't even need a brain and that chicken will run from you metaphorically without its head because it's acting out a survival reflex. So when you put all this together, you see the generational re-imprinting of very dangerous ideas about what a man is and what a woman is that comes from the hierarchy of religion which then became politics. The religions also owned the militaries and they also owned the school systems. Then your mom and dad were imprinted into that system. So they passed the same painful traumas to you. It's very rare, for example, to, to work with people that abuse their kids that weren't abused by their parents. Of all the career, my, in all my career, I don't think I remember a single case where, I was working with someone to help them with the pain of abusing their children. That was not an abused child. Okay. So we, we just pass it forward unconsciously without thinking about it and, and rectifying it. And almost always when parents are pu- punishing children's because they're in a state of stress and they're really irritated or upset about what happens. So they're, they're knocked out of their open receptivity, left, right brain integration, creativity, and, you know, as Einstein said, you can't solve a problem with the same thinking that created it, okay? So that brings us today, there was one other factor that I wanted to put in there um, that was really important, but if it comes back to me, I'll, I'll bring it up. So what do we got today? We've now got a world full of broken parents and broken school teachers and broken religions run by sick, broken, uh, elite, rich people that come from very often traumatized backgrounds. You look into people like George Soros, Bill Gates, uh, and many others who have been psychologically analyzed, Bill Gates, I mean, George Bush uh, Jr. You know, they've all, there's many psychological analysis by skilled psychologists saying these people are all damaged children that have never healed and they're now inflicting their damage on the rest of us. Okay, so here we are, 2023. We got all this problems of women uh, claiming men are toxic. We've got um, men having a lot of problems with women. And what does it do? It's a great way to divide people. What's the old saying? I'm an ex-paratrooper, divide and conquer, right? You break the family unit down. You disconnect people from their friends. You stop the Native American Indians from doing their ritual dances and ceremonies and it weakens them. They lose connection to their power driver, their source or their spirit, which is God. And so you keep feeding people junk, you poison the food supply, you poison the water, you poison the air, which has been going on for a very long time, fluoride in the water, poor management of toxic waste, poisoning food supplies.
1: Um, chemtrails,
0: chem trails, heavy metals in things, vaccines, 72 vaccines for the average child that Uh, In California, for example, by the time they're two years old, two or three years old, they'll have gotten 72 vaccines, full of aluminum, full of mercury, full of all sorts of unidentified stuff that doesn't belong there, poorly researched, um, propaganda at the Yazoo. Well, you throw all that in, in one pot and you got the world today. And so what you've got is men treating women the way they were programmed to do, but being so tired, so unhealthy, and so stressed and so afraid, they can't consciously see what they're doing and realize it. So they're acting it out. You got women not seeing men for what they are, but seeing their male trauma imprinting from dad and church and hierarchy. And so men are having a hard time with women because they're in the same stressed out boat. They're acting out their programming and their unhealed traumas. And you know, as a medicine man and spirit guide who's done you know hundreds of healing ceremonies with plant medicines, as soon as you take someone in a shamanic journey, the function of the plant medicines is to break down the default mode network, which is the ego network in the brain, which allows the imprinting and the unconscious to rise up, so that the shaman or therapist can actually see and talk to the patient and say, "Okay, what are you seeing? What are you feeling?" And you see all this anger toward mom, anger toward dad, fear of God, all this stuff comes up and you immediately realize why they've got digestive disorders, why they've got, you know, for example, um, of all the women I've seen with cancer of the sex organs, 90% of them at least were raised Catholic. Of all the women I've seen with breast cancer, almost all of them were stuck in the idea that they should give themselves away to others, do everything for others and not take care of themselves and put themselves last, which is a classic Christian idea. That's also in, in all the Abrahamic religions. So what happens is a woman begins to resent the people she loves. She doesn't want to say it outside because that isn't religious. That is mean you're self-centered. It means you're not being of service And you're going against the good book. And so it creates a lot of guilt and shame. And that guilt and shame, of course, is stored right in the heart. That's, you know, where the mother's love comes from and mother's heart energy most right through her breasts. So you see huge amounts of breast cancer. and I've worked with many, many cases of breast cancer that I tracked right back to this very um. I must love and care for everybody else before myself. I don't have time for myself. I'm gaining weight. I'm not happy with myself. I don't look good. I don't feel good, but I've got to do this for three kids and I got to take care of my husband. I got to clean the house. And some of them are also trying to carry jobs. So you see a lot of resent building. And of course, who is God? God's a man and he's a mean guy. That's what we're told. So so of course that unconscious programming, now the men in her life, can easily fall into that and it's just an, and it doesn't need to be conscious. it's unconscious. For example, that's, if you hook people right. up to if you hook people up to um, biofeedback devices that monitor blood pressure, heart rate, um, breathing rate, skin, galvanic skin response, and other indicators of autonomic uh, reaction, you could find many cases where people are interacting with the opposite sex and think that they're not under stress, but the biofeedback will show them they're having a stress reaction and they don't even know it because it's unconsciously mediated, right? For example, you can watch their breathing change. They'll stop breathing through their belly and start breathing through their chest. And then you've got all these other issues. Men have forced women into high-heeled shoes, men have basically set the dress codes for women made sure they were uncomfortable all day who wants women and who who in a woman as a woman wants to be, be a flight attendant with uh, high-heeled shoes and uh, or or a store clerk uh a dress of a certain length and a certain color and a, a where she can't really be herself. In other words, she's uncomfortable all day. You heard my podcast with Sing Singer and what bras have done. That's another male invention. He was on mine, one of the most popular shows, Bras and Breast
1: Cancer. Fantastic episode. So important. Every woman listening, I want you to go. We'll put that in the show notes for everybody. And Paul, you hooked me up with him. He, that was just one of the most. I I don't wear a bra to this day. I mean that that that's just a game changer. Every woman needs to hear that episode.
0: Yes. So important. So now if we tie all this together, I mean, you don't need to be a rocket science. What you you keep doing this to people for generation after generation. So even if we say this all began with the beginning of Christianity 2,000 years ago, well, if we have kids every 20 to 24 years, you divide 2,000 by 24, um, you get a very large number. Okay, so essentially what we've got is we've got a perpetual long line of trauma from belief systems and trauma from father mother archetypal confusion and we've got trauma from the food supply trauma from the environment trauma from the education system and now we're too tired to be conscious we don't have enough spiritual training to remember that we should count to 10 before react. We, we can take the time to look inside of ourselves we can name it blame it and tame it. When Amy says something like this to me, it really pisses me off. When she says that, I call that Amy being my micromanaging mother. Blame it. Whenever Amy tells me I need to get my underwear off the floor, I want to yell at her. Tame it. Ah, there she is doing me a favor, showing me where I have mommy programming that's unresolved. So I say, thank you, Amy, for reminding me to stop acting like a child and clean up after myself versus screw you bitch, shut up or I'll hit you and throw you out of the house. And that's how a man gets male labeled as toxic masculinity, right? Acting out daddy programming and Donald Trump programming and George Bush programming and the Pope and the long, long line of our, you know, devious little gods. Mm -hmm. And so, really that in my observation that's where we're at and and where you're likely to see less of that is in in people that have become spiritual and not necessarily religious but have committed themselves to doing their best to live from their heart and asking the question what would love do now instead of reacting breathing through your belly learning to witness your thoughts instead of becoming them and enacting them as though you're a remote control robot, which is exactly what they're trying to turn everybody into right now, interestingly enough. And so you see relationships of equanimity between people that have actually done the work to heal and done the work to develop internal practices like name it, blame it, tame it, Or as you know, I teach the coin drill, which we don't, won't take the time to go through because it'd be a long discussion, but it's a simple technique using a coin. You can do the same concept, but uh, it's, it's an easy thing to do, but you got to do it to, to reprogram. And whenever we look at a thought within us or a belief within us as a detached observer, it can never be the same again for the simple reason that if you take a thought, call it a cup. And the act of looking is consciousness, call it water. Every time you look at a thought like my wife's a bitch or my dad's an asshole, and then you step back from it and say, is that really true? That's one of the most important questions we can ask in regard to any of these thoughts, feelings, beliefs, or emotions is, is it really true? So the point I'm saying is every time you step back from it, you Mm -hmm. see there's There's my habit of reacting to Amy as though she's my mother. I really don't need to do that. My dream is to have a healthy, long-term loving relationship with her, raise kids that are healthy, and therefore I'm going to choose not to react. I'm going to say to Amy, I understand that you're really wanting me to clean up after myself. I'm guessing you get frustrated when I do that. To be honest with you, I'm a little frustrated with myself because I keep thinking I'm going to stop doing that, but somehow I keep doing it. Therefore, I'm going to put signs on the wall. Remember not to leave your underwear on the floor. And so now what's happened is every time you do that, you actually pour consciousness into the cup of the unconscious and eventually it spills over, right? Okay. Yep. So all of a sudden now, The spilling over means now I'm aware. I don't have to keep looking at what I've already done reflexively after the fact. In other words, I used to ready fire aim, but every time I started witnessing myself pointing my gun at somebody and said, Wait a minute, are you sure you want to pull the trigger? Because that's somebody you love. You added more consciousness water to the cup of self awareness. And by the time the cup overflows, You might still get triggered, but instead of reacting, you might say, oh, there's my brain making me think Amy's my mother and I'm about to react to her like she's my mom, but she's not my part. She's my partner and I love her. So now you have achieved enough consciousness to transcend the programming and develop new neural networks. And with practice, they will become more efficient than the old pathways, especially if you emotionalize it. When you say, okay, I really have to infuse this with love. I love my partner. I'm going to clean myself up. I'm going to not leave shit around. I'm going to leave signs up for myself. I'm going to make a committed effort. Each time you start doing that, you're building the efficiency of the neural networks. Now that will take a long time to override all that childhood programming because those pathways are highly facilitated. And that's why spiritual practice and ritual is so important because it can take years and years and years to override deep unconscious programming and you know this is Mm -hmm. why things in spiritual training are often ritualized this is why in tai chi a tai chi or a qigong master gives you a block of training in a gong or a hundred day period because Mm it has to be driven deep enough into the nervous system to compete with the bad habits that tell you i'm too tired or i'm too sleepy or i'm too lazy or whatever it is Mm -hmm. so once you get enough consciousness then you actually have free will until you have healed and become consciously aware and can manage your programming. You have no free will. You're literally like um, a train on railroad tracks and you cannot get off them. You, no matter which way you want to go, right or left, a train can't make that decision unless the track goes there. It can't go there. Mm-hmm. So unconscious programming is like railroad tracks and conscious self-development and spiritual practice which is ritualized and repeated regularly throughout the day usually with positive intentions with a dream goal or objective that gives you a sense of levity so you have a reason to do it because if you achieve that dream goal or objective you have fulfilled yourself in some meaningful way therefore you've grown yourself you've become more whole as a person then you actually start getting more and more freedom So a a, a lot of this toxic male, female behavior is um, actually not an act of free will, which I think is important to understand because it gives you a lot more empathy for people that behave that way, because they're really like robots acting on a program. They don't even know they're doing it. And one of the reasons it's been so heavy since COVID, you've seen all this Black Lives stuff, racial tensions, religious tensions, sex tensions, because When people want to change social programming, they induce a lot of stress because stress breaks down your ability to stay at a conscious level. It pushes down into your survival programming, shuts your right brain off, puts you into a fight or flight automatic response. So all they do is put you under enough stress that you get scared. And then you're looking for a mommy or a daddy figure, usually a daddy figure to guide you. And you just put the carrot in front of your face. You'll be safe if you just wear a mask and get this shot. And, and that's Pavlovian training. And, and isn't it interesting that as Mark Gaffney unveiled on my podcast, the guiding hero and mentor of Yuval Noah Harari and Klaus Schwab is Adler, who is an expert at um, <laughs> behavioral In psychology, which is essentially Pavlovian training, training animals, not human beings. And it never looks at trauma and it never looks at history. It always just thinks it's just trading one idea for another um, and it it never works for very long because as soon as a person's under stress, they drop down into their old programming. So as I see it, that's what's really going on. You've got all these issues combining to make one, shall we say, toxic sexual soup.
1: So what I'm hearing you saying, Paul, is that and this is the this is the the rub because this we're talking about making conscious the unconscious so we can't change things we're not aware of right and what i'm hearing you say is this is all going on under the currents we're not even aware that that this is happening so
0: not until we're in enough pain to go what the hell do i keep doing to myself
1: uh huh how many so,
0: divorces does it take before someone says, maybe I'm part of the problem?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what would be steps to rectify? I mean, okay, becoming becoming conscious of what is me, what is not me. We've talked many times before about we're not even aware of what our own thoughts are. We're right. not even aware of how we're programmed. And that's what I'm hearing you say in the show today, is that so much of our what we think are our beliefs, we... <laughs> they're not even really our beliefs and they've been passed on from generations and we're not even consciously aware. So what would be practical steps for the listener, the viewer to become, to have more agency, become more aware of what is me and what's not me. How how do I, how do I separate what I've been told from what really is truth and truth for
0: me? Well, the first thing that you've got to do is you've got to have a dream uh, big enough that you don't need a crisis so if you really want a true freedom in your life and not you know become somebody else's play toy or, or be an automatically controlled robot as part of social engineering which has been going on for thousands and thousands of years then you have to really have a north star on your compass so that could yeah. be i want more freedom in my life i want healthier relationships with the opposite sex, or even the same sex. There needs to be something to orient your compass <clears throat> to give you something to inspire you to climb up to a new level of awareness. So then you say, okay, uh, let's say your dream is to be healthy, just to be a healthy person. And you start you look in the mirror you get up in the morning to look in your mirror and, and you you see you hear your mind saying i can't believe how ugly i am i'm never going to find a partner i i just my eyes aren't very beautiful my nose my lips whatever and then you say well what's my dream my dream is to be a healthy person and those are not healthy thoughts so you then you name those thoughts you say oh there's my um the the face critic in me and then you might have a, a belly critic and a butt critic and a body critic. Uh, and so you, you name it, you say that, that's, that's the, that group of thoughts, that's the face critic. And it's, it's a really unfriendly, um, guest.
1: So I'm hearing you say objectify it again, like, because that yeah. kind of comes down a lot. Like, like you want to disassociate from your thoughts. Like yes. I am not my thoughts.
0: You have so to we're see getting- them.
1: Yeah, we're getting these. uh, You know, we look in the mirror, we get this. You know, we start berating ourselves. Oh, I'm too this, too that. Not okay. So, what I'm hearing you say is the first step would be to, I, I am not my thoughts like that. My soul is not saying that. That's so. You want to remove yourself from that.
0: Yeah. The first step though is to have a dream, or you won't have any reason to keep doing it. You'll say you're going to do it, and then 24 hours later, you're right back stuck in your Mm-hmm. Your self judgment, and you don't even know you're doing it because you're so habituated to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, an example of habituation Osho tells a true story. When he lived in India uh, as a younger man, there was a city in um, India near where he lived, and, and the, the city went bankrupt, and they had a maximum security prison there. And they couldn't afford to keep these prisoners fed and cared for and protected. So the town council got together and said, well, you know, what should we do with these guys? And, you know, it's probably, I'm guessing a couple of hundred. I don't know how many it was, but there was a lot of them because it was a problem. And so the ga- the prison warden said, well, look, everybody in there's done at least 20 years or more. Why don't we just let them go? They've all served long sentences. So the town council said, well, that's the best thing we can do is just let them go. And so they went, the, the, the prison wardens went in and the, the, they unlocked the handcuffs and the ankle bracelets and said, you're free to go. But when they came back the next day to start cleaning the prison up, almost every single prisoner had put himself back in his cell and attached his ankle and wrist chains. And when they said to them, why did you do that? Why are you here? They said things like, I don't know what I'll do out there. I don't know how to live out there. I don't know how to make a living. I don't know where to get food. And one of the most common comments was, I can't sleep without them on. So some of them went out and they just couldn't sleep because they were so used to being bound that they had to rebind themselves and they felt safer in their bindings and in their pain and discomfort and lack of freedom than they did having freedom.
1: And that's exactly how many people live. The uncomfortable what I know, the known yep. uncomfortable is less uncomfortable than the unknown uncomfortable.
0: That's the origin of the <laughs> saying, the devil you know yep. is always better than uh-huh. the devil you don't know. So the point that I'm trying to reiterate, though, is if you don't have a dream for yourself, mm-hmm. That's an honest dream. One, you're really willing to participate. Like I am sick and tired of being overweight and I am now going to do something about it. I choose to lose 40 pounds and get myself in shape. And I'm going to visualize myself as that person each day. And I'm going to consciously pay attention to every thought and every choice I make because it's either moving me toward that freedom and that healthy person with a nice body or it's moving me away right? You're either going towards it or away from it. Just like when you're driving to a destination, you got a GPS coordinates to get to the airport. You're either following the directions and getting there or you're getting lost. There's no two ways about it. So once you have the inspiration and and the motivation, the next step, interestingly, (laughs) and kind of paradoxically is just to witness the thoughts but not feel that you have to change it. For example, maybe I've given you the coin flip drill, another one called the ABCD method. A, activating event. B, belief. C, consequences of believing it. D, debate. So you take a page, take a piece of paper, divide it into four quadrants. So just put a giant cross through it. Upper left is A, Upper right is B, lower left is C, lower right is D. That's called the ABCD method. And so you say, what's the A for activating event? Well, whenever I look at myself in the mirror, I see this unattractive person and I can't believe anyone's gonna love her or him. So that's the trigger, the A equals the trigger. So you write down the experience. When I look in the mirror, I, I have diminished trust love and confidence or whatever in myself b what is the belief the belief is nobody's going to love me or i'm never going to find a partner that's attractive or whatever so that's the belief c is the consequences so you then write down what are the consequences well the consequences are i, I feel lonely i feel afraid because i'm getting older and i haven't found a good partner yet um i feel sad i feel depressed and anxious because i'm getting older and you know i want to have kids and whatever then d is the debate so now what you've got to do is you've got to sit on the opposite side of your own program mind and ask the question is it really true and if you can't answer it yourself you have to ask other people do i really have ugly eyes are my lips too fat or too skinny are my teeth so ugly that nobody wants to kiss me, etc. And so you have to honestly debate yourself, which forces all the unconscious material up into consciousness because you have to debate yourself. So you make it active. Okay. So if you don't have a dream, you're not going to do that for very long. You'll just fall right back into your pattern. So each day it's important to restate your dream and whenever you have a negative event like this, you have to state before you engage the negative thoughts or the negative actions that you've performed, you say, okay, there's the there's the unhappy face critic inside of me that says, I'm too ugly. Then you state your dream. My dream is I choose to be beautiful and I thank Great Spirit or Mother Universe for bringing the perfect partner for me to enjoy a beautiful life and have children with. Okay, so then you say, okay, the negative thought was I'm too unattractive, but if a negative exists, there has to be a positive. So this is the coin drill. The head side of the coin is I'm ugly, just to keep it simple. But my dream is to be as beautiful as I possibly can be and trust that I'm beautiful to somebody else who can love me too. And then you flip the coin. I'm ugly has to have a functional antagonist because you can't have a negative without a positive or a positive without a negative. And therefore you say, well, I'm beautiful enough and I have a big enough heart that I can find somebody that will love me that I can love and live happily ever after. So what you do is you make conscious that you now have the choice what to believe. So now you're stepping from railroad tracks to the horse of freedom. The horse symbolizes freedom. And now you're building a conscious network in your mind. Every time you do one of these exercises, you're actually building new neural networks that start facilitating that very belief so it gets easier and easier to do. And eventually when that thought happens to pop up, you just, oh, f- isn't that funny? There's my I'm ugly uh, virus again coming to remind me what I used to be like. And, and you just say, thank you, Mr. I'm ugly virus. I don't need your help anymore. And you just ignore it. So you don't take yourself so seriously. No, you stop energizing it. Mm-hmm. You know, as I say to my patients, don't water what you do not want to grow, right? Don't water weeds, So all these negative thoughts and even these negative judgments about men by women or women by men, they're all weeds, right? And they're not even weeds that we planted for the most part, or they're the weeds that are the outgrowth of trauma. And so as we commit ourselves and ritualize ourselves, for example, it's a very good idea when you go to bed at night to review your day against your dream and say, okay, how did I do in my relationship with Amy today? How did I do with my relationship with myself? How am I doing with managing my money? You know, do I, did I fall prey to my addiction today? And whatever you acknowledge that you did well, you give yourself credit for and where you didn't do so well, you give yourself empathy and compassion and Say If if I was talking to myself, I would say, man, Paul, I I can really see you're sad because of the way you um, were rude to Amy today when she was just trying to politely tell you you left your underwear on the floor again. Yes, I would feel a lot better if I had not done that. So we give ourselves empathy and compassion because if we don't learn to be our own mother and our own father, we're susceptible to the programming of everybody else's or whoever we take as a surrogate and then once you've given yourself empathy and compassion then you can say wow i can see where i've made some poor decisions today and let's say it was you know you're a coffee addict and you know it's messing you up and drying you out and screwing up your menstrual cycle or giving you headaches you may not be ready to change but the most one of the most important things From mindfulness practice, and I know I learned this approach from Russell Sturges, who teaches mindfulness, is not to say beat yourself up because you didn't make the change, but to say, I can see where I have the possibility to choose not to do that. Mm. I don't have to eat the donut. I don't have to drink the alcohol. I don't have to judge myself like that. But I'm not ready to change yet, so I'm going to be aware that I have the power to make the choice, but I can wait until I'm genuinely ready to make the choice. Then you're able to maintain a sense of authentic autonomy, which is really a, a, a quality of freedom, right? You have the awareness that nobody's forcing you to make this change. You're not anybody's play toy. You're not anyone's slave. You're simply making a statement consciously that you're aware that you have the ability to make a choice. And if you're not ready yet to say, I acknowledge that I'm going to eat the candy and I accept the consequences. I'm going to keep talking to my wife that way and I accept the consequences, etc. And
1: that is an adult.
0: That's an adult is someone who accepts responsibility mm-hmm. for the choices they make mm-hmm. from day in and day out right in other words you realize you are the one with the most creative agency and your yes has no value until you learn to say no so what you start seeing happening is you get to a certain point where you actually can look at yourself and almost start laughing like okay i've been Mm -hmm. telling myself to stop eating this ice cream for about two months now i've gained 10 pounds since i played this little game that said I didn't have to make the choice until I was ready. But now when I look at myself in the mirror, I think I'm really ready because I'm getting heavier and hotter and more out of breath and more sweaty and more stinky and all the things that go with obesity, for example. And you, you realize that now it's time to push the freedom button, but this time when you do it, you're not doing it because someone else is coercing you. You're doing it because you're genuinely ready to step into your dream boots hmm. and start becoming that person every day instead of waiting for the magic pill that's going to turn you into the princess, the the lottery winner or whatever, which is, you know, childish.
1: So that magic moment when you actually make the change is what I'm hearing yeah. you say. Yeah.
0: Because, because you really are ready to do it and you fully accept the adult responsibility from being the co-creator of your own body, your own relationships, and your own life, mm-hmm. and you don't need anybody to tell you what to do. You don't need a book to tell you what whether or not you can play with your sex organs, or what you can eat, or what you can wear, or what music you can listen to. You know that's all fine for people that that are, um, shall we say, not ready to take responsibility for the circumstances of their life because they easily lend it over to fate.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: or it's oh it's my jeans or <laughs> you know they make excuses for it
1: that's my favorite it's my jeans or uh just getting older <laughs> yeah those are, the, those are the two that drive me nuts
0: or i don't have time
1: yeah that too well there's the third well okay so what let's just wrap Let's wrap this for, for everyone. And for me too, to get clarity as uh, we come to the end here, this has been as always extremely enlightening and thought provoking. Um, so what, what I hear us talking about here is making conscious the unconscious so we can regain our agency Yes. and, uh, just starting to own our, our lives, our, our behavior, our actions, rather than labeling things as toxic this and toxic that, but realizing that, okay, I have to be responsible for the life I'm creating. And to do this, it's helpful to remove yourself, become the objective observer yes. of what, what you're creating in your life. Yes. And detach with love and compassion. And um, really, just awareness of of what you're doing. Just that I, I guess that's a theme for me today in our discussion is that there's a level of uh, um, enlightened detachment to be able to I don't know if analyze is the right word, but to just to look at what what you're getting, what you're creating, and then you can from that place make a conscious choice of Am I moving in the right direction or do I need to redirect?
0: Yeah. So I'll throw a few things Mm. to to sort of help the synthesis of all this. One, we always have to remember love is a boomerang. Whatever we put out comes back to us. You go punch someone in the face, they're not going to give you a hug and a kiss. You steal someone's parking spot, they might get out of their car and flatten your tires or scratch your door with a key or worse you know, I could give you a, a deep metaphysical and spiritual proof of the fact that we're all the center of our own universe. But the reality of it is, is that we all know from life experience, you know, that's what the golden rule says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. In other words, love is a boomerang. And that includes our relationship with ourselves, right? Think of your body as the body of an animal, we'll call it the dog. If you abuse your dog, it's always going to be afraid of you, right? So if you abuse your body, the person that you perceive yourself to be is in your mind, your ego, and your relationship with your body is that of an abusive um, dog owner. So the dog will always be afraid of the person in it, which causes a lot of anxiety and ultimately leads to depression. So step one is remember, if you're being toxic masculine or toxic feminine, you're throwing the boomerang out. And when you treat people like that, They're likely to react in kind. That's how we get to see ourselves. You know, speaking of the God stuff, there's a great saying that I really love because we've talked about, you know, how God beliefs are at the root of a lot of this stuff. There's an old saying, I don't remember who the author is, but it's very powerful. You can always tell who your God is because he hates the same people you do.
1: That's Dr. Clarissa Pincola Estes. I had mentioned. Yes, I told you that quote. Yep. One of my mentors Mm -hmm. well
0: actually i read that in in my research for spirit gem so you might have also told me but i read it in one of my books and Mm -hmm. and i think that's just so dangerously true right Mm -hmm. so the first thing we got to do just like we look at our judgments of our face we got to look at our judgments of food we got to look at our judgments of sex we got to look at our people judgments of people of different races colors and creeds Mm -hmm. we got to look at our judgments of of everything because most of them judgments by definition separate us from things yeah, right yeah so if we can go from a judgment to an observation then we're we're already making a big improvement because an observation doesn't cut us off if you say mm. boy that woman's a real nasty bitch i don't like her that's a judgment but if you say wow the way that woman behaves is very stressful to be around and I feel sorry for her because she's probably got a lot of damaged relationships. That's an observation. You're 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 giving some empathy, compassion, you're observing, you're stating the facts, but you're not criticizing, labeling, or turning her into an object so you can reject her. Yeah, there's no
1: there's no value judgment there as right and wrong, good and bad.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then when we're facing these challengings. Uh, thoughts feelings and emotions and programs and we feel them acting up my wife's chewing me out because I left my underwear on the floor it makes me want to yell at her we can always ask the question what would love do now so there's a spiritual approach to it you just calm yourself and say well what would love do now now this isn't easy I'm not saying this is easy because the programming is very strong but this is the practice
1: especially when you're emotional (laughs)
0: <laughs> right. And that's why it's good to take a time out before you say anything. Just get out of the room, mm-hmm. state what your dream is for the situation, mm-hmm. cool down, and come back when you can stay connected at the heart. And so then ask what would love do now? Well, love would say, "I'm sorry, honey. I'm I realize you've told me that 5 times in the last week and I'm I'm doing my best, and maybe there's some tactics we can come up with together to help me." Remember, Okay, And then we have to remember that there's three qualities to the soul that Plotinus taught us probably about 1700 years ago, which are very, very true. And that's the abiding function, the witness, the reflection function. Was that the best choice I just made? Is that the way to think about myself and others? Could I be observing instead of judging? That's the reflection but the other th- aspect of the soul is representation representation so mm-hmm. so my reaction to my wife who keeps telling me to quit leaving my underwear on the floor i can reflect and then i can say how do i choose to represent myself next time i take my underwear off well i walk to the laundry hamper instead of just throwing them over my shoulder like i did when i was 10 right So we all can remember that the three qualities of the soul is there's always a witness who's detached from the polarities that make consciousness. We can always reflect on where we could have done better relative to our dream for that situation. What's my dream for my relationship with my wife? Well, I like good sex. I like good company. And I don't like a lot of tension in the house. Okay, good. That's my dream. So we reflect and we say, okay, now I'm going to represent myself and I'm going to represent myself as a man who acts like an adult in the presence of a woman and doesn't leave my dirty, stinky underwear where she has to pick them up and um, deal with my, you know, underside.
1: Okay. So I think we've given people a lot today. To This is some really heavy stuff. I encourage everyone to watch and listen back. because It's, um, it's not
0: as heavy as not doing it. I'll tell you that.
1: That's for sure. You know, it takes a lot of energy to try to repress yourself.
0: <laughs> it does. And you know what? Here's here's one of the paradoxes, Amy. It's the same spirit. Mm. It's the same creative agency in all of us that can choose to create and empower a negative mm. or a positive. So true. So it's all manifestation, right? So we, if we're in the habit of manifesting what we don't want, And we do it really well, like we're in trouble, we're in relationship problems all the time, our life just seems like shit all the time, which is a lot of people. I tell my patients, do you realize the same amount of energy it takes to create all these problems in your life and this terrible relationship that you have with yourself, if invested in something that you really love enough to change for, requires no more energy at all. In fact, all the money you spend on therapy, drugs, and all this other stuff you could be spending on holidays or redecorating your house. And you'd be much more in love with yourself when you realize that you're actually using the God-given gift of consciousness to use it to create what you want. So the key point I'm making is it doesn't take any more effort to create a negative than it does to a positive. It's just redirecting your consciousness and then watering what you want to grow. And, and uh, yes, there's work because you got programming. So it's kind of yeah. like it's, it's kind of like once you have a tattoo, it's not easy to get off. But if you want to get it off, there's always a way to do it. But if you don't, if you just keep saying, I'll never get it off, I'll never get it off, you'll, you'll have the tattoo till it poisons you. But if you start looking in the phone book and talking to people and saying, how do you get tattoos off? Somebody will come up with a, a way. And, it, and that's how we get everything done in the world. We, we work with others until we find someone that knows more about us, about what it is that we're dealing with. And we learn.
1: Plus, I'll say too, it's like the plane taking off, right? For anyone that's having a hard time getting started to make that initial push, it's 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 breaking the initial inertia. It's that it's yeah. that beginning, yeah, motion forward. That's the hardest part, and you have to remember, it's not going to always be that hard. It is at the beginning. For a plane to take off, it takes a tremendous amount of force at the very beginning. But then once it hits and then, you know, the air catches under the wings, then it starts to coast. You know, it's that initial effort that's always the biggest. So it's not always going to be that hard as it is at the very beginning. So remember yeah. that when you have a hard time.
0: And that's why the dream is so important, because the dream gives levity. Where the programming is as a form of inertia or gravity.
1: And I like to think of it as the dream is what I call the pull as opposed to the push. Like motivation is a push. Like I'm making it happen. It requires a lot of effort, almost like an an against effort. Whereas a dream is attractive. It's magnetic. It's pulling you towards it. So it's not creating or it's not causing or or requiring your energy as much because it's pulling you towards it. it.
0: and love is a form of levity and fear is a form of gravity, right? Mm. People always feel heavier when they're afraid. Yeah. They feel True. locked down and anxious mm. and wound, right?
1: Yeah. And tired and exhausted. And yeah, it's draining. It's it draining. brings up an
0: important point. You have to qualify a dream. You, you, mm. you know, if you say, "Oh, well, I'm going to be a millionaire next year, but the most money you've ever made in your life is $60,000 in a year. Yep. That's not a well-qualified dream. Mm-hmm. by by the science of goal setting you shouldn't go more than 50% of what you've previously achieved with regard to whatever your goal is or your dream is so mm-hmm. 60,000 last year means it'd be realistic to shoot for 90,000 this year now i wouldn't say to someone not to to dream up a million dollars i would just say not to hold themselves ransom and say my ideal dream is to make a million dollars within the next 12 months mm-hmm. but my first goal would be yeah. to just be on pace in the next month to make at least 50% more. And if I don't, but I've made noticeable progress and I keep going, I set realistically achievable goals mm-hmm. or you end up just kind of pie in the skying yourself right into not trusting yourself anymore. So the key point I'm making is we have to qualify a dream. Do we have at least a seven out of 10 genuine commitment to doing the work of manifesting that dream? does it make us feel heart centered when you visualize yourself as that person who is yeah. now completed or living that dream? I see myself as this fit, this healthy, get along with my wife. I see the bedroom is clean with no underwear on the floor. How do I feel? Well, I feel a lot better about myself. Good. You see, because if, if, if your dream's not well qualified, your heart won't buy in. And if your heart won't buy in, then your heart won't tell your head, that it's a realistically achievable dream because the heart always delivers justice to the head. So if a person's heart is saying, quit bullshitting yourself, but their head is saying, I'm going to be a millionaire next year, then you're just up in an internal state of conflict and you'll never have the the emotional buy-in, which actually is what's the most important thing for reprogramming the neural networks in the brain because emotional energy is far stronger than than cognitive thoughts, not even a contest.
1: Oh yeah, it's the it's the force behind it. It's energy in motion, right? So for me, I I know what's very powerful is to focus more on identifying what is it behind that dream that you're that you really want. Because I always tell people we have a to-do list, but you gotta have a to feel list. Because a lot of times what we think we want is because what we anticipate is how we're gonna feel as a result of having it or being it. Yes. So if you focus more on the feeling that you're after, like, okay, so what is it that the million dollars or whatever your example was is going to make me feel? How am I gonna right. feel you visualize that happening, having it right now? What are you feeling? So sometimes if you focus on the feeling that you're going after, that can take the handcuffs off of Great Spirit to bring it to you in the container that Great Spirit knows that you really want. Because a lot of times what you're dreaming for and aspiring to is really not what's best for you or really what it is that you think you want. Right. You know what I mean? You think you want a million dollars, but you really want security or yes. you really want respect or you really, you know what I mean? So Or freedom. Right. So if you kind of identify more with the feeling that you're going after, okay, I really just, I just want to feel safe. I want to feel successful. I want to feel valuable. I want to feel, Relaxed, or you know, just more on the emotional component of dream affirming stuff. Sometimes uh, it's more fulfilling, and like I said, you you don't pigeonhole an expectation of it has to look like this because then you're just you're handcuffing great spirit to bring it to you in another container that you didn't expect.
0: Yeah, all of these things are important. I think one of the most important things, though, is realizing you don't have to make the change. Just be aware that you do have the choice and the choice, mm. the power of choice is yours because mm-hmm. that's the first step to self-empowerment. You know, for a lot of people, like making the choice to divorce your partner after 10 years and two kids is a very scary thing to do. Mm-hmm. But if you're not genuinely ready to jump through that hoop of fire, just knowing that you do have the power to make that choice gives you a sense of reassurance that you're not really stuck, but you're just making the choice to stay stuck. Yes. Because for whatever reason, it's more convenient right now. But once you know you have the choice, you should also be carefully looking at what is it that's stopping me from making the choice. And maybe it's like, I don't have enough financial stability to to Mm -hmm. leave this marriage. So then that's when you should be inspired to look at ways to create financial stability Yes. So when you have, you know, 30,000 in the bank or whatever, you say, okay, I can make it for a couple of months while I establish myself. Now you're ready to go from, um, I know I have the ability to choose that to, I'm going to accept responsibility now for making the choice and then, you know, be adult about it and go, you know, as the old saying goes, pray and And move move your your feet. feet. Yes.
1: Thank you. Mormons. Yes. Uh, Well, I I think, I, oh, Quakers. Okay. (laughs) Well, I think this is a really great place to wrap because, you know, ultimately it's about the power of choice and not giving away that sovereignty that you have. You know, that's such a key thing because we always, we shoot ourselves to death and think like you just have to do it. But remembering that you always have that choice and you can always control how you think. I mean, we know that from like, um, was it Victor Viktor Frankl?
0: Frankel? The he's the, the Holocaust survivor. Yes,
1: and he talked about. I mean, you know, these people that survived these horrendous conditions because yeah. they controlled their mind. Yes, and, you know, it's like they can control my body and this and that, but they can't control my mind. And those are the ones that survived. So
0: I I tell people to always look for what I call ant infections, mm. and the ant infections are would ant could ant should ant should and ant. didn't. Aunt. Did not I didn't do it. I shouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. I couldn't mm. do it. So really what all that does is, is basically decrease your agency. It turns you back into a child. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- you know, Marshall Rosenberg reminds us that we, you know, have to take responsibility for the choices we make, or we're always a child, you know, and, mm-hmm. and using disempowering statements um, does not free you. So, Mm -hmm. you know, saying I choose not to make the choice right now means you're stepping into an adult role. And it means I also choose to accept the responsibility for keeping on drinking or Mm -hmm. drugging or leaving my underwear on the floor or uh, not (laughs) seeing if the science is real on vaccinations or whatever Mm -hmm. might get you. But we also have to accept the responsibility because if it takes you five years to quit your soda drinking habit, uh, you might end up with cancer. And then and get inspired to start making real choices a little bit too far down the line. So, you know, I think one of the most important things I teach people about the process of change is never bullshit yourself. Be mm-hmm. dead honest with yourself, because if yeah. you can't be honest with yourself, you can't be honest with anybody else. And and when you're in that state, toxic masculinity and femininity is is the least of your problems.
1: Mm-hmm. One of the things I I always teach my clients. Too is uh replacing the should with a could. Just yeah. that simple word replacement, you know, of like if you know, instead of saying I should do this or I should do that, say something like, I choose yeah. to do this or that, or if I wanted to, I could work yes. out. I could whatever. And there's a way to just an easy way by your words to create agency for yourself and bring consciousness to your choices and your actions. So absolutely. Uh, I love it. Paul, amazing, amazing. How can people find you? What what's next for Paul Check? What what where can we get more Paul Check?
0: Well, you know, all over the place. My podcast, as you know, Living 4D. That's number four, capital D, which stands for four doctors, Dr. Happiness, Dr. Diet, Doctor Quiet, Dr. Movement. Podcast is Living 4D with Paul Check. It's on all the major podcast outlets. Uh, The Czech Institute website is chekinstitute.com. My YouTube channel where I have, oh, about almost a thousand videos for free on almost everything you can think of from diet to exercise to mental, emotional self-management to spiritual practices to you name it, uh, which is my public service channel, is youtube.com forward slash live with Paul Czech live with Paul check and um, or just go on YouTube and search Paul check and you'll get all sorts of stuff. Um, if you want to be put on my rainbow workshop list for the workshops that myself and uh, my wife, Angie and, and Penny run up here, it's uh, you can email Penny at Paul check and say, please put me on the rainbow workshop list. Um and in the beginning of the first quarter of 2024, I'll be releasing my the beginnings of the first volume of uh, my 15-volume book set, which is Welcome to Spirit Gym, Your Guide to More Love, Life, and Freedom, which Amy has been graciously helping me with. And uh, there will be a membership program, website, and lessons that you can do, which really includes a lot of these very techniques we were talking about. I was just
1: thinking that a lot of this is going to be included for people to go deeper, understand more, get clarification, practical examples, help directly from you. I mean, to really navigate through this. This was just a little taste. So everybody can look for that. Paul's new venture coming out in early 2024, depending when you're watching or listening to this. And uh, I'll certainly be talking about it on Awakening Aphrodite. You can better believe it. Um, that compilation of your life's work, Paul. That's basically what it is.
0: That's it. It's my magnum opus. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, uh, it's a, it'll be about by the time I put all the workbook sections. And it's about 2,500 pages spread across 15 smaller volumes, so they're easier to digest. And they'll all have a workbook section behind each chapter. Uh, the books will all have a glossary, an expanded index. And a master key that will give you all the principles in summary. So no matter where you start, you can actually begin practicing the use of the whole system.
1: People are going to be absolutely blown away. I I guarantee.
0: I hope so. Just
1: I mean, every every chapter, every volume is is its own its own encyclopedia. Yes, yeah, it's, 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 it's rich. Yeah, and there's a lot of depth uh, to it. And it's uh, I just can't wait for the world to experience that whole thing. So that's coming well, in. Well, we can everybody. start
0: right now with what we just shared.
1: There you go. There's a little just, this is your practice to get you ready. This is the pregame. Yep. <laughs> the pregame warm up everybody. <laughs>
0: yes, indeed.
1: Paul check, thank you so much. Thank you for coming on the show again and sharing your love and your time with us and uh everybody please go to the show notes. You'll find all that stuff that Paul just mentioned to link on and some other episodes that would be related to this show that you can check out. And uh, I thank you so much for being part of this journey that we're on together for staying with us through this episode today. If you want to support me, the best way to do so is subscribe. If you'd like to leave a review, that would be amazing. Please share it with a friend that you think might help. And we'll see you next time. And be sure to check out Paul's podcast as well. Living 4D, and uh, we'll see you next time on Awakening Aphrodite. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Paul. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Would you like to support my mission to help empower people all over the world to be all of who they truly are? If so, please subscribe to the show, leave a review on iTunes, and share it with a friend. And if you're looking to take immediate action to align your energy and optimize your health, visit amyfornier.com. Thanks for listening to Awakening Aphrodite. Let's awaken her together in you. I'm your hostess, Amy Fournier, and I already can't wait to be with you again and for you to hear what I have planned for the next show. Thanks for listening to Awakening Aphrodite with Amy Fournier. To learn more about Amy, check out her website, amyfournier.com. That's A M Y F O U R
0: N I E R.com. You can also check out Amy's live and on-demand virtual fitness and yoga classes and sign up for her newsletter to receive a free mini ebook of three of her top tips for making holistic health a lifestyle. Again, that's amyfournier.com, and get your ebook sent to your email immediately. Connect with Amy on the daily on Instagram at fitamytv, F-I-T-A-M-Y-T-V. And watch many of the podcast episodes and subtopic clips on her YouTube channel, which is also Fit Amy TV. Enjoy, and we'll see you next time on Awakening Aphrodite.